going through these experiences has made me a much more compassionate, understanding, tolerant person for other people's experiences, whether they're health or financial challenges or family challenges. I, I am grateful to have had these obstacles present themselves to me because if we're all an onion, you know, it's made my layers deeper and it's made my life a lot deeper and it's made me and my thoughts a lot deeper. Hi everyone, welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston-Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today, we continue our interview with Ms. Susan Schroeder. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, I definitely recommend that you do. We'll pick up now with part two and continue to learn more about Susan's colon cancer diagnosis and then her summary of all that she's learned from these various glitches. Let's get to the episode. So colon cancer was a surprise, honestly. I mean, they're all surprises, yeah. like they're all surprises. But like I said before, I was working with a nutritionist because with my additional autoimmune conditions, I felt like the final frontier for me was nutrition. I feel like I have done everything else. I'm an avid exerciser. I work with an acupuncturist. I am very into relaxation and spiritual techniques and meditation. I do it all. I love all of it. I'm not regular practicing of anything. I'm a dabbler, but I do something every day. I felt like food I could get a lot better with. I sort of have a, I had a sugar habit and my sister and I used to always say like, we eat really well with a side of sugar. And I know that sugar is bad for cancer. And I just felt like the autoimmune things I was dealing with had inflammation issues. So I just felt like nutrition is the next frontier for me. And I, I knew a woman who I'd been talking to for a couple of years on and off that I finally said, okay, I'm ready to commit because food is such a big part of our lives that I knew it was going to take a lot of discipline to really do it for real. And I'm the type of person that when I do something, I want to do it well. And up until that point, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do the nutrition thing well, <laughs> but my kids are older now. And so I was committed and we did some testing that showed bleeding, internal bleeding. And she recommended immediately that I go to a gastroenterologist. And so I made an appointment with one right away and it was still COVID. So I had a video conference with him. And based on other things that had been going on in my gastrointestinal habits and things from childbirth, his feeling was that the bleeding was not that concerning. And so didn't feel the need to rush the colonoscopy, which I agreed with. And my birthday was two weeks away. So I kind of felt like I don't want to pay $10,000 to have a colonoscopy two weeks before I could have a colonoscopy for free. And that was the bottom line. And like I said before, they've switched the age. So if you didn't hear that note, it's now 45. And that was literally like a month ago, insurance companies started taking that on in the US. So what was interesting is my 
a dear, very old friend of mine that I'd known since kindergarten, who was actually my first boyfriend in sixth grade, passed away from colon cancer two years ago. And right before he died, his plea to all of us and the things that he said in his last, my text messages to him were, go get screened for colon cancer. Because if I had done that earlier or younger, I wouldn't be where I am right now. I, they could have caught this. And so that had kind of haunted me. And then on Facebook, I'd slowly be, be seeing high school friends who like, I got my colonoscopy, I got my colonoscopy. And I did have this sense of like, I really should go get a colonoscopy in honor of him, if not for anything else. So I waited until I was 50. And had my colonoscopy. And when I woke up from the procedure, the doctor informed me that there were five masses. He was only able to remove four of them. And that the one that was that he couldn't remove was because it was large, the way it was shaped. And his words were, it's likely malignant. And so I started crying right there on the table and it was still COVID, but they let my husband come in and then we went home and I decided I wasn't going to tell anybody. And I basically laid on the couch and watched probably like six hours of Jane the Virgin. And I'd already seen the whole thing. So I was like, starting at the beginning. (laughs) I know. I just, I love that show so much. So I watched... Jane the Virgin on the couch and told my kids that I was just recovering, still was tired and blah, blah, blah. And went through the process that I go through every time, which is the, I'm going to die. I don't want to die. I'm too young. I've been through too many things. All that woe is me stuff. You know, that's one of, I would say, you know, you had asked me earlier, like myths to think about myths. So I'm going to jump ahead into one point in that people think when you go through this many, these many things that you're like super strong. And I always go through the doom and gloom phase and it always takes a few days. I go through that phase by myself though, or, and with my husband, I don't bring other people into that phase, which is why people think I'm strong because I don't necessarily show that part because I have to go worst case scenario before I can then transition to know and believe that no matter what, it's going to be okay. And that is a philosophy that is like a life philosophy for me. And so I set myself up. I make sure I have things in order for my kids. I make sure I have things in order for my family. I make sure I have my relationships in order. Like I try to keep things clean. Like if something's rough, I try to address it. And so we can move forward because I've had to have that experience of you just don't know what's going to happen. And so that's how I get to the point of regardless of what happens, it's going to be okay. The people I love are going to survive this. I'm going to hopefully survive this, but I know, you know, you just don't know. And so I went through that doom and gloom phase for a few days. And then I came to the like, decision and it's a conscious decision really where I said you know what I'm not going to worry until there's something for real to worry about he said likely malignant and I read the report like 15 times Mm -hmm. it was likely so I'm like likely isn't a hundred percent 
That's true. So I am really good. I do this in my work. I'm really good at looking at the positive side. I'm really good at looking at the glass half full. So that is, that's something that I bring to the table just innately. And I've learned how important it is to do that because I could be stuck in doom and gloom for months. And I made the decision that I was like, all right, well, if this is my final days before having to go through uh, treatment for colon cancer, then I'm going to have a great time. I'm going to enjoy these final days. And they weren't my final days. And that is definitely dramatic thinking. But that's, that's how my brain works. So I made that conscious decision. And then I had to wait for biopsy results. So those came in, I think it was about a week. It was about a week. So got those results. The polyps that were removed were all non-cancerous. So I was like, Woo-hoo! and then the doctor told me that the, the one that was unable to be removed, the portions that they were biopsy. able to biopsy were showed what they call high-grade dysplasia. They call it that it's basically cancer, but they don't call it cancer anymore because they don't know whether it's invasive or not. Mm. So if they call it cancer, you freak out. And they told me this, we don't call it is cancer. We don't call it that anymore because people freak out. That's basically what they said. I was (laughs) like, all right. So then it was a matter of, okay, I have to go see a specialist. So then the seeing the specialist and had to have a second colonoscopy with the hope that he could remove it all in that procedure that is not surgery. It's just a routine colonoscopy in a very operating room like setting with a lot of very high tech equipment. And I was so fortunate to have have it done by a practitioner who like developed the procedure. So I was very lucky he was able to get it all out in one piece. And he told me over the phone that the procedure could not have gone more perfect. So that was a great feeling. And then I had to wait another week or so for the biopsy. And then when the biopsy came in, we were playing phone tag. Like he would call me and I couldn't pick up and I would call him and he couldn't pick up. And I was like, oh my God, please just leave it on my voicemail. And and then your brain goes like, are you not leaving it on my voicemail because it's bad news and he wants to tell me in person. But no, if it was bad news, they would have make me come into the office. But would they? Because it's COVID. So maybe they won't make me come in. You know, so your brain goes through all these gymnastics. Finally, he left me a message and told me that it was non-invasive that I was good to go and that I do have to come back in six months to make sure they got everything. And in his words, he said, I dodged a bullet. Mm-hmm. And then I got a call from the first gastroenterologist who followed me closely during this whole procedure. I'm so fortunate again, to have such a dedicated doctors. And he explained what was happening with the age range and how It's now been lowered to 45. Yes, if they had seen this coming when I was 45 instead of 50, it might not have been as big of a deal, but there's no way to know 100%. And he said, you know, the challenge is when we lower the age range for a diagnostic test, fewer people come in. Yeah. And I said to him, I go, well... I'm going to do everything I can to tell all my 45 year old friends that they better get in there and get their colonoscopy because it could save their life really. And I have proof of that with my dear friend who died 
And now myself, who luckily I, you know, caught it still in time, but got my procedure done like minutes after I turned 50, basically. So that was like a month ago. So that was very recent. And I had a lot going on in my business in the month of May that you are aware of. (laughs) And I, there was a lot going on in my family. We had a loss in the family during that time as well. And I will say that, you know, circling around to the business and health combined, I feel fortunate to really enjoy what I do. And so having that commitment in that month kept me really grounded and kept me really distracted with a great, very positive thing. So that's another thing. It's like, all right, like humor for me, exercise is huge. I I mean, I exercise every day because I don't drink caffeine anymore. And exercise is the thing that like gives me that, that energy boost. And, you know, the community that you pointed out, you're right. I'm so fortunate to have a community around me. And then also like things that I love to do. You know, I'm so lucky that I enjoy my work and I've got two gigantic dogs that basically run our house that I'm constantly cleaning up after and chasing and trying to have some semblance of control over. So having a full life also really helps during these roadblocks or hiccups or speed bumps, you know, whatever euphemism fits. But I've really tried to not have my physical glitches define who I am, but also not ignore the gifts that I've been given as a result of those experiences, because those gifts have been many. There's been a lot. Well, I'm so honored that you decided to share that with me and with all these listeners when it's so brand new and you haven't even told all your closest friends yet. It's true. I have told my children. I told them after the fact. So I'm a little bit of a control freak. My family would say I'm a control freak around everything, but I will admit to being a little bit controlling around how the news is communicated. Could be because I'm in in marketing and communication is part of what I do. But also I think because it goes back to that feeling of not wanting to burden people. And I want to help people feel good in my work, but also in my life. And so if I can control the message enough so that they don't have to go through a lot of pain, that actually makes me feel better. So this time around with the colon cancer, I, gosh, I told like less than five people, probably my husband, I told him he could lean on his community for support. I was like, you can tell your brother, we can tell, you know, my sister-in-law who's a doctor. And then we kept it from people for a while until we knew the final Mm -hmm. outcome was good. And so I told my daughters who are older now, so I have to be even more careful about who I tell because it could get back to them. And I would hate for them to hear something not directly from me. I want them to always feel that we're honest with them, good or bad. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as I got that news that it was not invasive, I told them Mm -hmm. and, and they were like, "Uh, cancer, are you rolling your eyes at my cancer? (laughs) They're like, no, no, but it's just like a little unbelievable. 
Mm. But yep, it is yeah. a little unbelievable. And it has an impact on them. So I do feel that the weight of that, every time I tell them a new diagnosis, it has implications for them because half of their DNA came from me. But I've told them, you know, they've heard it many times, like you will get a mammogram when you're 35, you will have a colonoscopy when you're 40, if not sooner, like who knows what's going to happen in medicine between now and then. But they need to know, as you know, I have a 20 year old and a 17 year old. So one of my kids is in charge of her healthcare, I can't be involved anymore. And so she needs to start learning to advocate for herself. And even yesterday, she had a doctor's appointment, a dermatologist appointment, and she went on her own. And as she was getting there, she had some questions and I was texting her like, say this. And I was giving her like a little (laughs) script to say, and then I said, make sure you ask for this and, and not to be a helicopter mom, but to make sure that she feels comfortable asking questions that might be hard. Like I think about myself sitting back in that surgeon's office at 35, having to ask for a second opinion. And I want to catapult my kids over that fear and get them comfortable right away. So, you know, we do our best to have our experience, educate others. Part of it is just people have to go through it on their own to, to really learn what's right for them. You're very wise, Susan. (laughs) I've had a lot of experience. And now I guess you get to pick back up with your nutritionist where you left off. Yes. That was a distraction. And (laughs) now you can go back to figuring out. (laughs) I've been, I've been on a very, I don't like to say the word restrictive because it, it harkens to like eating disorder language, but I've been on a nourishing diet and that has focused a lot on vegetables and meats and fruits and nuts. And it's not, it's not paleo. It's not anti-inflammatory. It's not vegan. It's based on specific foods that don't react well in my specific body. And we're doing that for six months and we're going to see what happens after that. I would like to introduce some things back in a lot of the things I haven't missed and I do feel better. My energy levels better. And I thought I had a lot of energy. So I I thought I felt fine, but I actually feel better even. And I notice it in my skin. I notice it in my hair. You know, you know, you start to notice these things and you don't realize that, you know, I've lived a lot of years and this body can get depleted pretty easily. And we only have one of them. That's something I've really learned. And I'm still learning that I was a big, not that I was a risk taker, but I didn't pay attention to health until I had to. Yeah. I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. We yeah, we, we don't pay attention until it applies to us. That's right. So Susan, I want to come back to you mentioning that some people don't have the relationship building skills that they need to maintain community. What would be your tips or recommendations on how to build those skills, how to build community if you don't have one and you need one? Mm, It's such a good question. And having not pre-thought about this, I'm going to say that being yourself and sharing your own stories 
are the things that draw people to you. Mm-hmm. And I see that in my own life. I was a very shy child and I had a very shy child. I also have a very not shy child. <laughs> so I'm able to kind of study from my own experience as a shy child and, and not shy adult to my oldest who was shy as a child, not so shy anymore to my youngest who was never shy. And to see that when we share ourselves, people are drawn to us. It's magnetic. That would be the biggest piece of advice. And then I would say the other piece is being kind of like what I said earlier, being clean with your relationships. So not holding on to things in a way that causes grudges or bad feelings and knowing that we're all going through something. So in the same way, like I did not have a great experience at my second colonoscopy with the nurses on staff and it wasn't well done, (laughs) honestly. Mm. And yet I have had enough experience to know that they've just come out of COVID that I needed to give them a little slack. I'm going to communicate to whoever needs to know that things could be improved, but to also remember that these are human beings too. And so whenever you're building a relationship with someone, sharing yourself, understanding that if they receive you, amazing. If they don't receive you, it might be more about them than about you. They might have something going on that they can't receive you where you are and that's okay. Move forward. And then you don't need a huge number of people. You can really have a lot of support from like three people, one, two, three, you know, the people who have been the biggest supports to me have been a small handful and I share myself with them. I'm compassionate to what's going on with their lives. And I am terrible at remembering birthdays. So that's not part of it. (laughs) And I just keep the relationship clean. Like if something comes up that's problematic, I try to work it out right there so that I can move forward and they can move forward. And we can know that we are in a good place with each other. That's great advice. You mentioned that your county has the highest breast cancer rate in the state. Do you have any idea why that is? No, I, and that fact might not be correct, but (laughs) it's a high rate. Let's put it that way. It's, it's one of the highest. We don't know. There is speculation that it could be because there is access to testing. And so if you test more, you see more. Mm-hmm. That's been some speculation. I was part of a study out of University of California, Davis, when my second daughter was born. We were both randomly chosen based on her birth certificate. And they followed us for like seven years. And we kept track of what we ate. Mm-hmm. And I do a monthly phone call with them. And then it escalated. It was a scientific study. And they were studying the levels of chemicals in our blood and plastics in our blood based on what we ate and the cleaning materials that we used in our home. And they followed us for seven years. And most of it was phone interviews. And then at the end of the study, we 
agreed to each have a blood test done. Well, you know, I agreed for my daughter. (laughs) She had to do it. And then they studied how much, you know, toxins in the environment. We don't know. We, I wish we knew there was also, we had a cat that had cancer under her tongue (laughs) and vets had said at one point that there was speculation that that could be from environmental factors because they lick themselves. And so they are bringing a lot of what's in their environment into their mouths. It's hard to know. I live in one of the most beautiful places I think in the world and Northern California is incredible. We spend a lot of time outdoors. It's very health conscious. Hard to say. Yeah. That's really cool that you were part of that study though. That sounds like fun. (laughs) It was really interesting. And at times they would call and I, you know, I had like a baby on my hip and a toddler running around and be like, yeah, we ate five strawberries. I can't remember. (laughs) Yes, they were organic. (laughs) You know, so some of my answers might not have been like hundred percent accurate, but it was cool to feel like we were doing something for science. Did you get along the way any feedback on what they were finding or the results or anything? We did get the results of the blood tests. And I remember before agreeing to the blood tests, asking them, are we going to get any guidance if something bad comes up in the blood test or are we just left with this information? And I did have an appointment with someone to go over our results. But gosh, that was, I want to say that was about, 10, 11 years ago. I don't really remember. I think I still have the results somewhere. There was definitely plastic in our system. And I think they, they rated us compared to the mean of everybody. And I remember feeling like we were kind of right in there in the averages. We weren't super high or we weren't super low on anything. We were kind of right in the middle. Susan, given all that you've been through, Is there anything you know now that you wish you knew then as you contemplate your health journey? You know, one of the things that this experience has given me is an understanding that our physical health isn't necessarily in our control. And I say that not to be causing fear, but more to be letting everyone off the hook and to, I am someone who has tried hard to do all the right things and live a very healthy lifestyle. And I still have had a lot of these glitches, like I I like to call them. Some of it is, is not because we're overstressed. Some of it is not because we did or didn't do something right. And I had a doctor say that to me at one point. He said, listen, what what you're being diagnosed with right now, you couldn't have done something to prevent this and you didn't do anything to cause this. And I wish that someone had said that to me before I started going through this in that things will happen in our life with our health. And in many cases, you didn't do something to cause it. And in many cases, you couldn't have done something to prevent it. Now, I don't say that in to mean like go crazy and and (laughs) don't pay attention to your health, but to let yourself off the hook if you're someone like me who tends to be a little hard on yourself and to realize that these challenges are going to present themselves and you're going to learn so much about yourself and about humanity in this experience. The 
joy in our lives is so important and it's so, you know, it, it's just life is about experiencing joy. And yet the hardships are the things that we really learn from. And the hardships are the things that make us who we are and make us interesting. And it's the reason we're having this conversation is all of these hardships that I've had. And everybody has something and it might not be health related, but going through these experiences has made me a much more compassionate, understanding, tolerant person for other people's experiences, whether they're health or financial challenges or family challenges. I I am grateful to have had these obstacles presented them present themselves to me because if we're all an onion, you know, it's made my layers deeper and it's made my life a lot deeper and it's made me and my thoughts a lot deeper. I'm able to connect with people on a deeper level because some of the surface stuff that goes away when you're, when you're dealing with a a real crisis, you realize that's not what's most important. And that the things that are what's most important are those relationships for me. That has been the thing that's really gotten me through. I wish I had known that in the beginning. I don't know if I would have done anything different Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I would have believed it if someone had told me, (laughs) but that is one of the things I did mention that, you know, doctors, are humans. And I also, whether I wish I had known it or whether it was something I learned that medicine is a science, but it's also an art and there's a lot they don't know. And so you can participate in the process in a collaborative way. And I had never thought about my healthcare situation being a collaboration mm-hmm. between me and my doctors. But I, I do feel that now. And that's a pretty recent feeling for me, I would say. And bringing in complementary things like acupuncture, like nutrition, like exercise, uh, and thinking of it all as those are the things that make up my health team is something that is pretty new thinking for me. And I think if, if we all thought of medicine and our health and healthcare as a collaborative process, I think patients would be more comfortable advocating for themselves and having an open conversation with their doctor. And I think doctors would be more respectful of patients. And not to say that they aren't, but there are some that could maybe use a little bit of the collaboration lesson. That's pretty remarkable. And I find it interesting that you said this is almost like a new realization for you in in your your later years, because I'm thinking, wow, you've been through this. Sounds like at least 15 years of um, various ups and downs Mm -hmm. with your health. And from that very first time when you're like, "Mm, maybe I could get a second (laughs) opinion to to now. It sounded to me like you were growing all that time. And so it's interesting that you you just made that connection when it sounds like you've been doing it all along. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been doing it out of necessity. Mm-hmm. But when you when you step back and like being asked this question, stepping back and looking back and thinking about it, 
that is one thing, the collaboration piece that I was maybe forcing in the beginning and not feeling unsure about it and uncomfortable about it. And now realizing like, maybe that's how it should be all along. Maybe there is no reason to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And there are probably people who are much more evolved than I, who never had to go through all of those stages to get to that, to get Mm -hmm. to that learning. And every time I have a new diagnosis, I always am like, all right, I've learned the lesson. Now what? <laughs> what am I supposed to learn? When will this end? When will the learn? Like, must I keep getting diagnoses? So maybe that was the lesson. <laughs> when you meet these new people, I'm curious, like new doctors and stuff, do you actually have to go over your whole history with them? Or is there some sort of electronic portfolio that gets sent to them from folks you've seen in the past so that they can read up before you get to them? I have filled out the electronic portfolio what feels like 40,000 times. It's an exhausting procedure. It's a very emotional procedure for me because I have to go through each one again and remember like, yeah, and I had breast cancer again. And I don't like doing the health history. And I've tried to bring along, here is my health history but everybody needs it in their system. Yeah. Now that everything is electronic, everything's electronic, but there's no one place that everyone goes to get the information. And I know that there are apps out there that exist. I know that there is a huge opportunity for someone to make a ton of money on whatever this system is. But because here in the US, our healthcare is so splintered, I guess is the word. Every doctor's office needs it in their system. And what is hard for me is every single time I tell the history and I, and I appreciate it when they ask, honestly, because you never know if they read all the records prior to coming into seeing you every single time I get the same reaction. And it's like, wow, you've had a lot. I have, you know, so it's that reaction that I get from non-doctors and doctors of like, oh my gosh, wow. And I'm used to the reaction, but at the same time, it's hard to have to go through it every time, but it's not the end of the world. I can give my health history in a nutshell and then move on with my day. Now now you can give them the podcast and say, oh, listen to the first half. That's right. Just listen to this. (laughs) Any myths and misconceptions? I know you gave me one earlier, but are there any others that you want to add? Let's see. So that note that I said before of that belief that you're strong, I am strong. And yet I'm just doing what I need to do to live Mm -hmm. and to live a quality life because that's my goal. So that, that is one of the, the myths is that people think, wow, you're so strong. And I just want to say back to them, like, you can do this too. You didn't see me when I was, you know, vegging on the couch, watching Jane the Virgin for six hours, (laughs) spinning in my mind out of control. You know, you didn't, you haven't read all the journal entries that I've written. You know, I write in a journal every day and all of the ones that were 
preparing for my brain surgery, my journal turned into letters to people for when I didn't make it because I had to prepare for that. And so even if people are super strong, they have, they've had the, I don't even want to call it weak moments, but they've had those moments of darkness too. And then, you know, the collaboration in healthcare, as opposed to doctors being heroes and the need to advocate for yourself. The other thing I think that is a, I hope it's, I don't know if it's a myth, actually. I'm so deep in this. It's hard for me to even know what the myths are anymore, but the people are not their illness. Mm-hmm. And so there's this like fine line, like we were talking about, like telling this story is hopefully therapeutic for other people to hear. But like we were saying earlier, telling this story is very therapeutic for me. So in the same way, like when a woman has a child, letting them tell the birth story many times over the course of their whole lifetime is very important to the process of being a mom. Mm -hmm. Going through anything big, when you can tell it, it like helps you release. It helps you make it real. That's why I believe so much in storytelling. It's why I love what you're doing with this podcast so much. And at the same time, when someone's in it, I'll speak for myself. When I'm in it, I don't want to talk about it because in many cases, it's all I'm thinking about. So maybe the myth is that our illness is like all encompassing from us and we can only talk about serious things. And I don't want to like not be deep with this person right now. And she's going through so much. And I feel like I need to talk about all the things. And no, I just want to talk about normal life. Mm-hmm. I just want you to like, tell me what you made your family for dinner. I want you to tell me the story of when you got food poisoning on the airplane. I want to, you know, when you're offering to help me with something, help me by letting me participate, help me by making me feel more normal. So and a good example of that was when I was recovering from brain surgery and my vision, I had double vision for about six months. So I couldn't see, I couldn't drive. I couldn't, I couldn't do much, but it was, my kids were little and it was so important to me to be their mom in whatever way I could. And so rather than my neighbor offering to drive my kids to school or walk, we walk to school, but walk my kids to school for me, I told her I'm coming. We are walking to school together. You can always tell how I looked on her facial expression because I would come walking down the hill with my daughter. And if she had this look on her face that was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is not okay. I knew that I wasn't doing my best that day. And she would like kind of watch this step on the sidewalk. I'm like, I'm fine. I got it. I will make it. <laughs> but she was there for me every morning to walk with us to school. And she probably could have gotten there a lot faster on her own. She probably would have gotten home a lot faster if she didn't walk with me. But we had always walked back and forth to school together chatting before I had my brain surgery. And so she made sure that I had that piece of normalcy after. So patients, those of us who are going through stuff, we want 
to be part of our normal life as much as possible. And I remember when I was on the other side and had a dear friend who was dying, losing her life from a brain tumor. And we laid in her hospital bed. We were chatting about what was happening in her neighborhood. And that she told me multiple times after that visit, how much that visit meant to her. And we didn't have a deep spiritual conversation. We were chatting about what was happening in her neighborhood. And sometimes those are the best, best things that people can provide to Mm -hmm. someone who is recovering or in the throes of the middle of an illness of some kind. Normalcy. We just want to laugh and be normal. That's an amazing, amazing example and story. Do you have examples of when you've had to advocate for yourself? I do. And I think that I can share this one pretty quickly. In recovering from my brain hemorrhage and scheduling my brain surgery, there was about a seven-month gap. And in that seven-month gap, my husband changed jobs and our health insurance was based on his job. So I had to navigate the health insurance. And in the middle of that changing of jobs was also when it was like the same day, couldn't have been worse timing. It was also when I was given the referral for the second opinion for the brain surgery. And so I basically had to beg this insurance company because they said it's under this insurance and they said it's under this insurance. And it was this Mm -hmm. ridiculous back and forth. And I finally got a supervisor on the phone and I was in tears and I said to her, listen, I'm like, I am a college educated, very vocal. English is my first language. I am feeling basically healthy wise, fine. I am not feeling sick. How does someone navigate this process? When they don't fit into that, those categories, maybe English is, you know, I was so angry. I got Mm -hmm. so angry and I was crying and, and I said to her, I need to see this doctor and it's a matter of life and death for me. And I can advocate for myself. And there are a lot of people out there who can't cause Mm -hmm. hello, they're sick. And and I played the whole, like, I have two young children and I want to be alive for their life. I just kind of laid it out there for this woman. And she she listened and she, to her credit, you know, she put me on hold and she came back and she finally said, okay, I want you to write this down. And she said, I want you to use this authorization number. We will authorize you to be seen by this surgeon. And I was like, oh my gosh, thank God. So I wrote down the the authorization number and she said, I said, are they going to take this? Is the hospital going to accept this authorization number? And she said, if you have any problems, I'm giving you my phone number, my direct line. And so I wrote it down in my, that little notebook I had. And she said, call me if you have any problems. So we're driving, this was then months later, we're finally driving to the first appointment and I realized like, maybe I should check in with her and say, like, we're on our way to the appointment. I just want to make sure this authorization number is good. So I called the number and I got that, that like, DDD, the number you have reached has been disconnected or it's no longer. And I was like, Oh, oh my gosh, she gave me a fake number or she doesn't like what happened. So I was, so I'm sweating and we're like on our way to the appointment. So I was like, okay, 
Susan, play it cool. Just go in there and act like you're going to have an appointment. So <laughs> I get up to the front desk and the receptionist, you know, and it's like this super yeah. busy office and the receptionist looks at me and she looks at my name and my birthday. And she's like, Oh, she's on the computer. And she goes, Oh, Gert wants to talk to you. And I was like, try to smile and like, okay, who's Gert? And she said, Gert from billing wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they're going to kick me out. (laughs) What's happening? And she pointed like behind me. So I turned around and literally the wall behind me like opened up. Like it was this fake door came. It was, it was like a magic show. (laughs) And this giant woman came out from behind the wall and she's, I just smiled at her and she said, are you Susan? And I said, yeah. And I said, are you Gert? <laughs> she said, yes. And she said, someone with that authorization number worked really hard to get here. So I just had to meet you. And I looked at her and I said, I have an appointment. And she said, yes, you can have an appointment. And then I said, can I hug you? <laughs> she said, yes. So I gave her this big hug and that was my, that's like my story of advocating for myself with insurance companies. And it was apparently noticeable with the authorization number. And I still, to this day, have that anger within about how do people navigate this who don't have the privilege that I have. I have insurance. I have a community, all the things that we've talked about. I'm a white woman. You know, I will say that. And there are, I have illnesses that people know. I've had popular illnesses. I've had not popular illnesses. So I understand the differences between that. There are a lot of people out there that don't have this much going for them to help them through this process. So that is why when I turned 50, I had a big outdoor dance party led by this dance teacher that I adore. And we did a fundraiser for an organization I was able to find here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area called the Bay Area Regional Health Inequities Initiative. And this organization works specifically to help equalize and make more equitable the opportunities for healthcare in our region. I think we need that for the whole world. And so I was able to raise $1,500 for this, oh, nice. this organization with one with my birthday party. And, but it's an important concept. I think that it's another thing I was not aware of until I got into the system and, and had this realization of like, if it's this hard for me to navigate, there are a lot of people that aren't as fortunate as I am. Mm-hmm. And I feel badly about that. And I want to make, bring awareness to that and build compassion around that. And hopefully there will be some action. I don't know that I have the solution, but I can certainly be a voice to help someone find that solution. That's beautiful. And you've highlighted, I think, quite a few inequities along the way. So even just figuring out how to deal with the insurance. When you started off, you mentioned inequity and diseases. Like some, you didn't use the word cool, but I'm going to say some are cooler Mm -hmm. than others. Like some have all the attention and all the swag and they have their own month. And then others, Mm -hmm. no one, no one talks about. Yeah. There are 
so many types of inequities in healthcare, racial, geographical, disease, insurance. Do you have insurance? Don't you have insurance? We have to think about that here in the United States. So many people, your your insurance is tied to your job. I remember when I when I started my first business and I was applying for my own health insurance, like as a freelancer, and they denied me coverage. I was in my 20s because I had had a previous prescription for Claritin for allergies. And this was when I was denied, Claritin had become an over-the-counter medication. (laughs) And I had to go back to them and say, you're denying me coverage based on the fact that I have a pre-existing condition, which is allergies (laughs) that are mattered by a medication that's over the counter. It's so, I, I have to say, I'm again, another thing I'm so fortunate about is that my husband has a job and there've been times when he has lost his job or I lost my job and our insurance was on the, uh, based on the job and someone with my health history, I don't know what I would have access to. I think that pre-existing condition stuff is criminal. Like I, I think it literally is criminal and it should not be allowed because those are the people who need it the most. And I just, oh I don't know. Gosh. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm so with you. And I am, I'm that, that's me. Uh, I'm, I've got all the pre-existing uh-huh. conditions. <laughs> yeah. I think I had read at one point that I, I think they've changed it, but like pregnancy was a pre-existing condition. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I know. Well, and this, when I was applying for this individual health plan, my rates, it was doing it. I, I did it at the same time that another friend of mine was re-upping his plan, but he was a man. We were about the same age, but my rates were through the roof. I, I, I can't even quote a number. I don't remember what it was, but my rates were probably triple what his were because, and I asked about it and they said, well, you know, you're of childbearing age. And I was like, but I am not pregnant. So how do you know I'm going to have a child? You don't, Mm -hmm. you're going to assume and charge me triple. So, you know, gender plays into it in there's inequities in the research on women's health versus medications that we all take, but the research is on a man. And so we could go on and on, but I think that that this conversation is an important step towards go improvement. So conversations like these, I'm so grateful that you're doing them and I'm honored to have been included. It's just important bringing the awareness out front. Well, thank you, Susan. I'm honored to have had you as we wrap up. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything else that you want to share? Well, considering I shared my life story and this is way too long, (laughs) I don't think I should have any closing thoughts, but I just want to say again, thank you to you, Nikita, and your podcast is amazing. And I think you're doing a really important service here. Thank you so much, Susan, for coming to the Good Health Cafe. It was an absolute, absolute pleasure to have you and to hear your story. Thank you. What did you think? Quite an amazing story, right? And her ability to be so positive and 
thoughtful throughout the whole experience is really, really amazing to me. If you enjoyed the episode, send me a message. Let me know what you think. And if you're not already subscribed to our mailing list, please sign up at thegoodhealthcafe.com and follow us on social media. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.